When Facebook was scaling in its early years, the company developed engineering practices that were unlike any other organization before it. Early Facebook engineering developed unusual practices because the product was unusual. Facebook was a highly detailed, highly interactive, multi-user web application. Facebook was pushing the limits of PHP and JavaScript in a time when they were not simple frameworks to help with user interface development and data fetching. In addition to unique engineering problems, the Facebook product itself was also unique. When a product has as much traction as Facebook did in the early days, how are you supposed to manage the direction of that product? Should you double down on the core competency of the product and make it as good as possible at simply connecting friends to each other? Or should you rapidly expand into adjacent systems like messaging and groups and photos? How should you allocate developer resources when you have problems to be solved at every layer of the stack, from back-end infrastructure to front-end performance? At a typical company, you would put all these engineering problems and product opportunities into some kind of project management software and assign developers to work on them and gradually make steady, measured progress. The downside of that approach is that it slows down the pace of product creation and experimentation, and it turns software development into a top-down, bureaucratic process. At Facebook, developers self-assembled into teams that did what needed to be done. The engineers who were the most productive and charismatic could quickly build a reputation for themselves and become technical leaders. These influencer engineers within Facebook had a proven track record, and they would become magnets for other engineers who wanted to contribute to the projects with the most momentum. Facebook is a case study in the ability for developers to self-organize into groups who are working on projects that are meaningful to the company and personally satisfying to the individual engineers. Many engineers in the software industry work under a less capable manager, who has complete control over their creativity. This leads to employee churn, dissatisfaction, and burnout. Facebook's ability to move fast is predicated on its ability to match engineers with problems that are interesting to those particular individuals. Whether you want to work on newsfeed or developer productivity tools or machine learning research, there's a path within Facebook to finding a problem that is both important and fun. Facebook's unique set of engineering challenges required the company to develop a unique set of internal tools. Because Facebook had data and throughput requirements that were unprecedented, the available tools and best practices at the time did not satisfy Facebook's requirements. Over the years, Facebook has developed its own databases, its own caching strategies, and JavaScript frameworks. Nick Schrock worked at Facebook for eight years. He's best known as a co-creator of GraphQL, a tool for efficiently fetching data through a federated request language. GraphQL was the result of years of evolution of internal tooling within Facebook. Nick has discussed the creation of GraphQL in other podcasts, and we will have a more dedicated episode around a retrospective of GraphQL in the near future. Today's episode is about the process by which developers at Facebook self-organized, and Nick's ideas around how to identify a need for an internal tool. Since leaving Facebook, Nick has parlayed his experience in developer tools into Dagster, a programming model for data applications. The Find Collabs Open has started. It is our second Find Collabs hackathon, and we are giving away $2,500 in prizes. The prizes will be awarded in categories such as machine learning, business planning, music, visual art, and JavaScript. If one of those areas sounds interesting to you, check out findcollabs.com open. Findcollabs is the company I'm working on. You can check it out by going to findcollabs.com, or you can check out the second hackathon by going to findcollabs.com open. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a scalable, full-stack monitoring platform. 
Datadog synthetic API tests help you detect and debug user-facing issues in critical endpoints and applications. Build and deploy self-maintaining browser tests to simulate user journeys from global locations. If a test fails, get more context by inspecting a waterfall visualization or pivoting to related sources of data for troubleshooting. Plus, Datadog's browser tests automatically update to reflect changes in your UI, so you can spend less time fixing tests and more time building features. You can proactively monitor user experiences today with a free 14-day trial of Datadog, and you will get a free t-shirt. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog to get that free t-shirt and try out Datadog's monitoring solutions today. Nick Schrock, you are a engineer who was working at Facebook for a very long time. You are now working on your own company. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. When you joined Facebook, the application code was not in great shape. Facebook had grown very rapidly. There were not many unit tests. The code had anti-patterns throughout. Tell me about the state of Facebook's software monolith when you joined the company. Yeah, so... I'd like to explain the story through metrics. So I believe I was engineer 180. The company was about five years old. We were just on the cusp of getting 2 million active daily users, uh, pardon me, active monthlies. And then the number of unit tests in the code base, I'll give you one guess. Zero. It was zero. Correct. It was zero. And, you know, what I would say is that I was you know, shocked at some of the state of the engineering at Facebook and then amazed, maybe amazed and appalled simultaneously. And the things I was amazed at was the bias towards velocity. I had never worked in an environment like that. And when I was told, you're going to be expected to commit code on day one, and that code ships out to production every single Tuesday. And I was, I didn't even process it because I had never worked in an environment like that. And that's extraordinarily liberating. And the company was forced to build infrastructure around that. But then when you hopped into a particular file in the PHP code base, I would lose the healthy color of my skin and look like a a scandalized ghoul of some sort. So it was a really interesting time. It was actually, it was one of these ironic things where it was a testament to the overall quality of the engineers that they were able to be productive in that much of a hostile environment. But I always like to give the analogy that every engineering organization needs to decide how much time they're going to spend cutting down the trees and how much time they're going to spend sharpening their saws. And it was clear at that juncture, and the company realized it, that there was an imbalance there. What was it that made it so that Facebook knew it had to shift from building new things really rapidly to doing some cleanup? Was there some acute set of problems that were actually causing Facebook some issues? Yeah, I think we were just pushing a lot of bugs to production. They were starting to hire more uh, experienced engineers, and the feedback those engineers would give to the powers that be was uh, very strong, blunt, and consistent. And then I think all the engineers just knew intuitively that there was something wrong, and the leadership, to their to their credit, understood this as well. How did you prioritize what needed to be fixed? You know, the tools that Facebook typically used in terms of prioritization was a process called headcount, meaning it's actually very simple. You decide what company priorities are, and then you set goals in terms of staffing. So the way that a company communicates its priorities is who gets assigned to what project. So the company effectively, both in terms of ground bottoms up, because the engineers in those days had a lot of latitude to work on they want work on what they wanted, but also on a top down, um, in a top down way, the engineering leadership gave space for a lot of really talented engineers to work on the core infrastructure. Now that top-down versus uh, bottom-up management, you did hear a lot about Facebook being a, a fairly flat organization. What was the the management strategy in, in the earlier days? Was it, was it just kind of people figured out what needed to be done and it sort of spontaneously happened, or was there management that needed to occur? So there's definitely management. 
It was definitely flat. The team I joined out of boot camp, which is our process for spinning up uh, inside the company, was called Comapps. And this is a collection of what I like to call probably the 18 least manageable engineers in the entire company that were responsible for 80 and 90% of the surface area, the product. So that one team was responsible for managing messages, chat, events, groups, the profile, um, effectively the entire site except for the newsfeed and except for the kind of account signup flows that the growth team worked. So, I mean, now if you count that, I don't know how many engineers today cover that same surface area of product, but like hundreds. And managing that group is a challenge. But, you know, in a bot- meaning if it's bottoms up and flat, it doesn't mean that there's no management. It just means that the managers need to approach their job differently and need to guide and persuade their engineers rather than command them. So the engineer, the, the management was certainly uh, able to direct the work. And then Zuck implicitly did have effectively dictatorial control over the product and was very influential. And he could set priorities and then the engineers would have to respond. So you were referring earlier to some metrics-based ways of describing um, how the infrastructure was starting to bump up against issues. The, the number of users relative to the number of unit tests was infinite. Um, <laughs> So it was clear that there had been a pattern of people putting band-aids on things and not fixing the fundamental problems because there was such scale and there was so much to build and so many new ideas. Was there a problem with the engineering culture or was there an adjustment to the engineering culture that had to be made in addition to recognizing that, okay, we need to switch into fixing mode? Were there other, were there cultural elements that needed to be fixed? Honestly, I think there was just a collective knowledge and an acknowledgement that it was a serious problem. And to be clear, I don't know if the company made the wrong decisions in terms of, like, I think they went too far in terms of not building infrastructure. I think with just establishing a little best practice early on. But I think that most companies bias towards building too much infrastructure. I like to say that infrastructure is a problem you have to earn. Because if you build infrastructure for a product that no one uses... What's the point? And I think engineers naturally want to build too much infrastructure, myself included. Um, at my previous companies, I had built all this infrastructure for products that didn't achieve product market fit. So what was the point? Meaning internally. Like internally, you built tools or you built... I built kind of the tools that the other engineers used to build the product. But we didn't know what we were building. So the infrastructure has to match the yeah. product that you're building. So... Unless you have super high confidence, you have product market fit, it's actually good to bias towards fast iteration and working in the domain of your business rather than the domain of your infrastructure. It, and it's funny, when I talked to Brendan Burns, who made Kubernetes, before he made Kubernetes, he actually built internal search infrastructure that nobody used. He, right. he built it, he spent a ton of time crafting it and architecting it, and then nobody used it. And then he took those lessons and built Kubernetes. It sounds like you had similar lessons because within Facebook, you did build a ton of tools that people actually use. You built frameworks that actually had earned their worth in existence. Can you give an overview of some of the frameworks and tools that you built at Facebook? Yeah. So the bulk of my career was spent building the abstraction stack that ended up being externalized as GraphQL, which is now a you know relatively successful growing open source technology. And so that journey started, I was assigned a project that all the other, and I wasn't senior at the time, meaning that the existing engineers who probably had the capability of actually doing it avoided the project, which is probably a warning side I should have heeded. So I really got in over my head, and that project was trying to unify our infrastructure between our concept of pages, which is our public, meaning a public user's product, a entity that has a follow graph and not a friend graph, uh, and our traditional accounts, right? Because we wanted the site to behave more like Twitter, where everyone was on the same account abstraction. And it became relatively clear early on that that was a software abstraction problem, because migrating everyone was not feasible and there was huge investment in both products. 
So that kind of started me on this journey of trying to unify those concepts in software, which effectively led to the realization that we needed a coherent business object model for our site, which hitherto had not existed. So that ended up being reified or made real by in a framework called Ent, short for entity. So this is kind of the base object model of the site now. Um, so there's an Ent user object and an Ent event object, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of that was stacked a system called Ent Query, which was effectively a query language you could express with a PHP DSL. It was mostly modeled on Link, which is the .NET framework abstraction, uh, but it was modeled on Link spiritually. Link is super powerful and beautiful because it has explicit language support for it, and Ent did not. Ent Query did not have that. Stacked on top of that was a system called FQL Ent. FQL used to be the primary way that developers would access the Facebook platform meaning our external users, uh, a SQL SDSL over our object graph. With the higher level abstraction that Enquery provided, we were able to express our FQL tables in terms of a very, very thin wrapper on top of that Enquery framework. So that was able to replace a massive amount of platform-specific infrastructure. And then on top of that was our API to serve our internal developers, meaning companies that worked within Facebook, and that's what GraphQL was. So that was kind of the final materialization of that entire journey because we had built this internal abstraction stack that really fit the needs of our product. And then GraphQL was kind of that PHP API, but then expressed as a query language that you could you know, express as a string and send over a network. On Software Engineering Daily, we've had several shows about the future of technology education. We believe that boot camps are an efficient, cost-effective way to become trained for the tech industry, whether you want to be a programmer, a data scientist, or a designer. Flatiron School can teach you the skills you need to build a career that you will love. Flatiron School has immersive programming courses on JavaScript and Ruby, everything you need to become a full-stack developer. And if you're interested in becoming a data scientist, Flatiron School has courses on Python, SQL, and machine learning. You can learn in person or online, and you can find everything you need to get started by going to flatironschool.com sedaily. Flatiron School has options to save money on the program, such as gender diversity scholarships and income share agreements. Flatiron School also helps the students who graduate find a job. Every graduate is paired with a dedicated career coach so that they can find a job or their money back. The complete details are at flatironschool.com terms. Flatiron School is a cost-effective way to start working in the tech industry. Learn more at flatironschool.com sedaily. Now, you had a lot of success at Facebook compelling people to move in the direction of these abstractions that you were suggesting to them. Was there any lesson around convincing engineers to move in a particular direction that you learned early on? I don't know if I learned it early on. I had instincts, and then I was able to backwards engineer kind of a coherent or semi-coherent uh, philosophy around this. So I call this evolutionary means for revolutionary ends, the art of changing large software systems in place. Now, that's a mouthful, but I am a firm believer in incremental process. But incrementalism doesn't mean having incremental goals. So the goal was to transform and revolutionize the way that product engineers at Facebook worked. But the key thing was to chop up the work into incremental milestones and objectives such that it was actually feasible. And this interoperates with reality on a number of dimensions. One is that you actually don't know what the end state is until you're closer to that end state. Two, you need to bring your users along the way. Um, because if you jump directly from zero to N, 
they're not, it's going to be too much for them to absorb. So you need to bring your users along the way, incorporate them into the process, because if you do incremental chunks, they end up participating in the infrastructure, which is key. And then you can also be flexible in terms of aligning your journey while still holding that vision in your head to the organizational needs at the time. And I think this approach is critical because programmers naturally are often ideological creatures and they want to proceed. They believe there's a certain way is correct and they want to proceed from point A to point B in a direct line and get to the final answer. And if they're unable to persuade people to do this, or they run into some technical barrier, but the non-technical ones are the most fraught, actually, because it's extraordinarily frustrating when you believe you have the right answer and other people don't believe you. And that's when you hear engineers complain about politics and, you know, there's a couple kinds of politics in companies. One is the really bad kind when someone is locally optimizing and not maximizing for the global optimum. That's a bad politics. The good politics is the process of deliberation about what's the right path forward. And unless you have a totalitarian company, there's going to be discussions and compromise. And, and sometimes that means you don't, you don't always get what you want. And that's very frustrating. So you need to be able to navigate that process. And that interacts with the technical process. So incremental process, but without compromising your eventual long-term goals. And part of the incremental process is also picking your right clients. So I would always say you start with a single client, you deeply engage with them. Hopefully there's a pre-existing trust relationship. And if there's pre-existing trust and you're on the ground with them, they're willing to tolerate mistakes, deal with changing APIs. And through that process, you kind of start to dial in on the fact that you might be building the right thing. Then you might expand to three clients ones that have, are overlapping, but not totally overlapping because you don't want to overfit to one use case. You want to kind of capture a minimal N clients that represent, you know, say like 80% of the use cases in the company. And then only once you're really confident that you have product market fit, then you really go loud. And then I used to tell the people I work with, it's like, you should think of this like a political campaign, but with extremely informed constituents that have a lot of skin in the game. And what I mean by that is that just like in a political campaign, you need messaging. So it's not just about having the right technology, it's having the right messaging that feels authentic and aligned with that technology. And in any sort of non-trivially large organization, you will have to repeat that over and over and over and over and over again until you're so sick of yourself saying the same thing. But... It's just absolutely critical to be able to have message discipline and understand what everyone needs and understand that people, when you say something, hear different things. And that can often be a fraught process to navigate. And what's so important about it is at a company like Facebook, where you have some degree of engineer autonomy and some degree of bottoms up process you really have to make your case to people because it's not just like you can introduce some tool and force people to use it they're going to adopt it if they like it and there's probably you know competing ideas in the company you're going to really have to make a strong case so can we make this concrete with with some example of a tool or some fix that you made within the company so let me think about that. You know, I think broadly at Facebook, the internal dynamic, and this is where you have to understand the dynamics of the business, is that feed was the center of the universe, both in terms of the business, meaning that that's where the company drove all its engagement and eventually made all its revenue, but also in the technical dynamics of the product, meaning that every single team in the company effectively needed to integrate with feed. So if, especially in the data fetching layer, if you were able to convert or have the momentum to convert feed, the naturally the the abstraction would spread organically across the company. I used to say, you know, as feed goes, so goes the app. And meaning that that technology, which is deployed with 
to feed that will that is generalizable. Obviously, there's some feed specific specific uh, infrastructure that will end up bleeding through the rest of the organization. Yeah, so I think that's kind of the generalizable answer. And I think the other thing was just maintaining relationships, understanding who were the. I mean, I hate this term now because it's been polluted. Uh, especially post fire festival, but the influencers uh, within the company, not not Instagram models, but the engineers who actually did stuff and who could in turn convince other people to do stuff. So I attempted always, especially when I was more junior and didn't have the credibility myself to affect change, maintaining very good relationships with uh, senior engineers, getting feedback early in the process, responding to their feedback so that they felt they had some skin in these abstractions and then they advocated for it. And then once you get a sufficient corpus of kind of influential engineers who both just do stuff on the ground, but also have a voice, then things end up kind of unrolling as they will. How does one become an influencer engineer? You know, we have this, we had this internal tool later in the company that tracked, had a graph of relationships between people in terms of code reviews. <laughs> so, you know, every time you submitted a PR in today's parlance, what we call the diff, you would say like, hey, I want these four people to review it. And naturally, the people who were the most influential had the most kind of inbound edges in that graph. And it actually did really match the perception within the company of who were the strongest engineers. This is kind of frowned upon a little bit in today's world, but I still believe that engineering quality and productivity is a power law. The mythical 10x engineer. Well, I don't think it's mythical. I think there are 10x engineers and those 10x engineers naturally become influential. And is that the case whether or not they are good vocal communicators? I, I consider it multipl- multiplicative, meaning that the really impactful people, at least if you're doing infrastructure, are those who can both do work on the ground and therefore intuitively understand the needs of the developers. But then you can think of it as like a multiplier effect. If you're able to communicate that effectively as well, that kind of multiplies your impact. So there are still very influential people who you know aren't as communicative, um, but often they did it through other means. Instead of going and doing a lot of schmoozing and public speaking, they would write documents. And documents can be extraordinarily higher leverage as well. So, you know, you need some form of communication capability, but people on the ground are, we used to say code wins arguments. And that was the culture we tried to maintain. And uh, that served us well. Facebook had a platform that was totally unprecedented in software architecture, is, is my sense. And some of Facebook's weaknesses eventually became strengths. So it was the first high-scale PHP application, so it was forced to build HHVM. Uh, you know, it was one of the first products to really deal with mobile uh, infrastructure and performance at scale, so that led to GraphQL, arguably React Native. When did you realize that the problem set at Facebook was unprecedented and that you were going to need to slaughter some sacred cows, build some completely new abstractions that might fly in the face of conventional computer science? I mean, I don't think I ever realized it. We were just so, we were just working, trying to solve these problems. I never like, I didn't even realize at the time how that anything was particularly innovative was happening because we didn't really have, you know, it was a fairly cloistered world. It's kind of actually only after the fact that I realized that a lot, the PHP codebase at Facebook between 2008 and 2013 had a ton of innovations that are only now just spreading across the industry, which is kind of bizarre if you think about it. So, you know, one of our favorite tweets ever, I forget who tweeted it, that is in was in like every React presentation for the first two years of life of that project was uh, someone in a critical way tweeted Facebook rethinking best practices. And it might have been even worded more aggressively than that. It was not an approving tweet. But we were like, yep, that's exactly what we're doing. Because we wanted to maintain, you know, it's called like the beginner's mentality, where you try to strip away previous orthodoxy and try to approach problems from first principles. And then I think that combined with some of the unique properties of the problems that Facebook was trying to solve, kind of plus 
the personalities and capabilities of the engineers in your organization was really kind of a magical uh, mix. You know, now that a lot of us have kind of, you know, sailed off into the sunset or have worked at other companies, you know, only after the fact did we really realize that that was a special time and a special group of engineers. But at the time, we were just solving our problems and doing our jobs and just very focused. In in trying to think about the archaeology of the Facebook infrastructure versus the Google infrastructure, um, this may be like uh, overly contrived or like telling a story in my head, but one thing that stands out to me is that Facebook is like this huge opportunity that just grew and grew and grew and there were emergent patterns in the software architecture that as you're saying only in retrospect look beautiful and and important and innovative whereas google is like this you know they do all this planning in advance and they come to this beautiful abstraction that is really well thought out and informed by traditional computer science principles um do you have any perspective on what the difference is in Facebook's software development strategy versus Google's? So I think there's a couple dimensions here. You know, a lot of this is just downstream from the personalities and background of the founders. Um, so Zuck didn't graduate from Harvard, was very into the kind of hacker mentality of often compromised solutions, but in favor of velocity. Whereas Larry and Sergey were PhDs. And then the nature of the applications they ended up building, I mean, Google is a text box and then a list, but backed by extraordinarily sophisticated infrastructure. Facebook is almost the complete op. If, if Google is the ultimately verticalized app with a tiny sliver of surface area that's user facing, Facebook is like the opposite of that meaning that an incredibly wide surface area with tons of concepts that are interrelated in complex ways, both in, the, both in the product and in the infrastructure. And then the technology ends up matching both the nature of the product, which is in some ways a personification of the founder's personalities, and the staff who implements that, which again is also downstream of the founders and the early team. So... They are just two very different companies, especially in the early days, you know, kind of all the, the, a lot of the tech companies end up like kind of have, as they grow and have broader, you know, they, they staff their companies from a broader subset of the population. They end up somewhat converging culture wise. And as they expand into other domains um, that often overlap, but I would say those are the, that's kind of the primary, the reason I would say. The tool that you're best known for is GraphQL, and GraphQL grew out of issues with mobile infrastructure and data fetching, and we've covered it in detail in previous shows at a technical level. But to come back to what you said about the evolutions and revolutions and change within a software organization, you built GraphQL, but you also evangelized it effectively internally. Can you describe the process for your your evangelism of GraphQL? Well, this is, it was one of those tools that evangelized itself in a way because of a couple reasons. So one is there's the origin story of GraphQL. So this is a great story. So we had transitioned we had tried to build a mobile app on top of HTML5. This is called FaceWeb. It's notoriously one of the biggest clusters to redact language in Facebook history. Uh, Mark, you know, recent other events have superseded this, but <laughs> uh, uh, Mark at, at one point said that this is the biggest mistake in the company's history. And so the decision was made to do a full pivot to mobile and rebuild the apps using more traditional native technologies. Now, the the issue was, is that we had hired a lot of outside expertise who were incredibly talented mobile developers, but didn't have deep grounding in the Facebook infrastructure. And actually, they were prototyping this thing and building it over FQL, which serves our external developers. So like they were like building this over a three-year-old feed. It was missing all sorts of feed type. It was just like, wasn't, they weren't, they weren't going to succeed doing that. And 
one of my friends who had been kind of one of my, you know, both a close friend and also early consumer of almost every technology that I had participated in, a guy named Bo Hartshorn, he joined that team and realized very quickly what was going on. And he kind of started stopping by my desk every week and being like, Shrock, uh, he would say this in more colorful language, but we are in trouble here. And if you or someone doesn't engage and fix his data fetching thing, like this isn't going to work. And I was working on some something that wasn't nearly as important. But I'm stubborn, so he kept on doing that. Maybe the fourth time, I was like, oh, this is important. And, you know, when you're doing a massive technology shift like that, you're kind of shaking up the snow globe, right? And with every crisis is an opportunity. And, like, while the snowflakes in the s- snow globe are settling, you can kind of change the landscape a bit. So this is both a critical juncture in the business because we were about to IPO. We were about to be accountable to shareholders every month, every three months. So we couldn't just like stop development on things like we could as a private company. We needed to start making money on mobile. We needed to start having a good mobile experience. I don't know if you remember, but like the mobile experience was awful. It was so bad. And you know, this is a type of shift in technologies that kills companies seemingly unassailable empires get consigned to the grave on this stuff. Like Yahoo is an example. So it was totally, obviously, mission critical. And so just kind of the timing was right for this type of thing. And then, you know, was poking at this. And then I was seeing some things that Dan was prototyping, Dan Schaefer, one of the GraphQL co-creators. And then the kind of moment inspiration hit and built this thing. Now, we were working very closely with the iOS team, but what really kind of made this the easiest thing to sell that I've ever dealt with was when um, we ended up building a tool which is now called Graphical, Graph IQL, we love our puns. And this was a tool, yeah, I was talking about before about messaging. The easiest way to have messaging that's consistent is to somehow embed it in the tools that the engineers interact with. And literally, I could go, those same influencers that I mentioned, the engineers, not the fire Festival people, you could go to them and slap this thing in front of them and be like, start typing. And then things would fly up and they'd be able to construct a query very quickly. And they're like, you want that? They're like, this is incredible. So having a quantum leap in tooling that's visual, that's instinctual, uh, makes it, very straightforward. And then to double onto that, the first thing we built this for was feed. So that natural dynamic of as feed goes, so goes the app also kicked in, which made this actually our problem was the technology spread too quickly. You know, after we launched the iOS app, Zuck started exerting pressure to get GraphQL to be driving our profile, like our second biggest surface area in the site. So then, you know, then you're in the stage where Mark's just kind of like walking by and being like, when is, when is profile going to be done? And then, you know, we call this the ire of Sauron, uh, where, you know, you, you don't like it when, you, when it's on you, but then you miss it when it's gone. <laughs> so the, that was actually one of, I wish we, in retrospect, I actually wish we could have clawed back the adoption and done it at a more modest pace and brought in some more mobile expertise Um, especially on Android, which ended up being kind of our most fraught GraphQL offshoot and being able to go. So kind of lesson learned there in terms of mistakes that we and I have made in my career. So yeah, you know, embedding something in the tooling to make it blatantly obvious what the value is, is very, very effective. How did the evangelism strategy change as you went from this project being internal to open source? Well, once it went open source, Lee became the architect of the project, uh, partially because he came up with the launch and evangelism strategy, which, to be honest, I can be a little more upfront about this now, I guess, is that I didn't think it was going to work. So I was a GraphQL manager at the time, and... I was trying to convince Lee, oh, we should open source this thing because we were kind of an open source momentum. React had been open source to great success. And we were trying to open source Relay, which you can just think of, take GraphQL and React and smash it together. And that's Relay. And 
in order to open source Relay, we'd have to open source GraphQL. So I called this my Byronic fantasy because uh, his name is Lee Byron. <laughs> and, you know, he's tough to convince of things. And then he came back and he's like, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to write a spec. And then we're going to write an unproductionized reference implementation of this in JavaScript. I was like, you're out of your mind. And then he showed me some of his ideas. I was like, you're completely changing the whole system. It took me a while to get you know come along with the changes to the system. And it ended up being one of those brilliant redesigns. The number of very elegant and subtle decisions that Lee made were was extraordinary. Um, it's an extraordinary piece of work. But I was still skeptical about this spec. I, I, my position was like, no one's going to read it, let alone implement it. But I was wrong, very wrong. Within six months, it was implemented in most major programming languages. And then, in fact, people were already trying to implement it before we released the spec. I actually, one very prominent member of the GraphQL community, Mikhail Novikov, he was explaining to me how they had actually implemented a server of it before we released the spec by sniffing the network traffic from their iOS devices. And I was like, okay. So that changed the evangelism for sure. But by the process of the spec, not just did not just improve the technology, but also improve the messaging, which made it we could come out. We had this like the spec. We really strive to make it written in plain English. It's one of the only specs that I know. I mean, I'm biased, but that where you can go and look it up and read it, and it kind of like reads like a normal document rather than like an insane spec. Like you can read it and kind of grok the system, which is good. It kind of opens with our. Um, it opens with a preamble of like, here's the philosophy of the system. That is still quoted today at large. So what it, I think the evangelism changed, now I think about it, that it was more formal. We had to formally write everything down, both the technology and the messaging. And then you have this surreal experience where then as the technology grows, you see people on YouTube like aping your shtick. You're like, I wrote that in a document. Now it's being repeated by someone who is explaining it almost better than I am, or I can, or we can. So I think the lesson I would take away from that is one, believe in the external developer communities because writing a GraphQL engine is hard and they people did it over and over again. So that's extraordinary. And then um, also having this formalized written out messaging is very high leverage because if people end up reading it, absorbing it, and then repeating it to other people, you have this kind of viral spread of the ideas, which is just as important as the technology. Not maybe as important, but is a very necessary complement to the technology. FindCollabs is a tool for managing hackathons and innovation within your company. FindCollabs allows anyone within the company to create new ideas and build momentum around a new initiative. FindCollabs allows your smartest, most driven employees to build projects organically. If your company is looking for new ideas and innovations, check out FindCollabs. It's free and it was started by me. It's something I genuinely believe in, and if you have any ideas or complaints or criticisms of FindCollabs, you can always email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. FindCollabs lets people within your company create new ideas. Whether you want to run a hackathon and generate new ideas, or you want a long-term system to manage innovation within your company, check out FindCollabs at findcollabs.com. Which brings me to the question of Facebook open source versus other open source solutions. So with GraphQL and JSX and React and Facebook's suite of open source technologies, Facebook really changed the world of open source. And it really changed the, I mean, in the React world, the way that people use JavaScript and JavaScript frameworks. Do you think Facebook open source was better from a technological standpoint than Angular? or And was GraphQL better than something like Falcor? Or was it a matter of the evangelism and the communication skills of Facebook that made the Facebook technologies win out? 
So I'm inherently biased, but I do think it was the quality of the technology that won out. You know, let's take, and I think also part of it was that Facebook's style of app is far more aligned with the majority of business apps in terms of their requirements than Google. Meaning that, like I said, the core product of Google is a text box and a list backed by very sophisticated infrastructure. And obviously they spread into other domains, but that's the core culture of their company. Whereas Facebook is a big complicated app with lots of interrelated concepts and really complicated application ontology, et cetera, et cetera. And so the solutions that we built were far more geared towards that, which is much more like any other business app that you see anywhere. Every business app I know has tons of different concepts and like the UIs change all the time and it's complicated. They have complicated business logic. They don't necessarily have complicated infrastructure problems. Now, Facebook solves complicated infrastructure problems as well, but we have that complicated business logic. So I think I'm biased. I believe that those frameworks are qualitatively better. You know, I like to, I might get in trouble for saying this, but like I, I like to say Angular is when you take the worst ideas from Java and port them to JavaScript. Um, whereas, you know, React feels like a much more JavaScript native uh, solution in my view. Now, JSX haters will probably disagree with that, et cetera, et cetera. But I believe that the solutions are qualitatively better and they fit the domain. Let's take Falcor versus GraphQL. One of the big selling points of GraphQL, this also plays into what I was saying before, is that you modulate your messaging to the current technical reality sometimes, because one of the big selling points of GraphQL is that you could coalesce all your interactions with the server into one request, rather than having a chatty interaction, which can be devastating on mobile networks. Now, there's nothing inherently in the abstraction of Graph in REST or Falcor that using something lower in the stack like HTTP2 could solve these issues to some degree. But it was a huge selling point. And something like Falcor was designed for Netflix. And a Netflix app, since you're streaming video over it, you are therefore definitionally on a network that you can successfully stream video on. So they were willing to tolerate far more chatty interactions with their server. And I think that was one of the reasons why GraphQL ended up having wider adoption. We've talked about one strategic inflection point within Facebook that was perhaps the the biggest strategic inflection point while you were there, and that's the mobile transition. Were there any other strategic inflection points within the company that you recall that affected you as an engineer? Sure. A big one when I just joined, um, I'm blocking on the name of the project, but it was effectively a response to Twitter that made our feed much more real time. Um, That required a feed rewrite. And I guess we kind of like had one of those every 12 months. It was kind of the nature of the beast. But that was big. But I mean, the shift to mobile is by far the most decisive technology shift, at least from a product perspective. And therefore, you know, I was building infrastructure for our product engineers. So that's what, that's what we felt. So I don't think anything is comparable. But that's only from my view and I don't have global view of the organization. So yeah, someone else might disagree. But from my perspective, the mobile ship was the biggest strategic shift that affected the technology stack. Were there any other quote unquote best practices within Facebook or I guess in software engineering that you rethought when you were at Facebook? <sighs> yes. So two come to mind. One is ORMs. Facebook did not use an ORM as traditionally defined. One good way to make me mad when internally someone would go like, oh yeah, Ent, that's just another ORM. And that's, that would cause me to start pounding tables and be like, it's the exact opposite of an ORM. There's no relational store underneath. But that one was driven almost by technological requirements. Um, yeah, ORMs are famously the Vietnam of computer programming, uh, which I firmly agree with. I think you uh, actually said that in our last interview also. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I hate ORMs, so... I think the more interesting story, because I don't think it was driven by Facebook's particular technical requirements, but is certainly a dogma in the industry, is model view controller. Model view separation was a dogma in the industry. And this is an amazing story, actually. So um, this is one of the battles that was fought in our PHP code base. And so we used to strictly separate this stuff. And we had 
XHP, which is our JSX precursor, which was in PHP. And then we had a thing called Preparable, which was our way of orchestrating asynchronous fetching with our backends. And so what you'd always have to do is that you'd have to, in separate files, you would have to edit your data fetching logic in a preparable file and then go to XHP and then match that and change your render. And this is just the way you did things. And all kind of the, you know, beard stroking senior types, including myself, thought this was just the way you did it. And then it was one engineer, just to, these, these two engineers, it's brilliant. One guy named Ben Maurer, who had been an intern of myth and legend, who then joined the company full-time, and he was fresh, I think nine months in. And then a, another intern intern, who was just there for the summer, a really talented young man named Zach Rate. And they wrote this thing that was like, eh, model, model view's dumb. Uh, we need a thing called preparable XHP, which kind of co-locates these things in one file. And this is actually, this ends up being materialized externally, eventually, as Relay, Apollo Client also has that concept. And this happened in like 2011 in our PHP codebase. And in retrospect, it's the most obvious thing in the world, which is like, by having model view separation, you are pretending that something is decoupled, and it's very coupled. It turns out, in order to display a piece of data, you have to fetch it. Therefore, you create this unnecessary decoupling. And at that point, very young, young engineers were able to kind of... It's actually one of my proudest moments culturally, because you can see the, the discussion on the PR unfold. And like someone would weigh in and be like, this is terrifying, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Zach and Rayton would go talk to them and they'd be like, ah, they have some good points, you know. And I'm very personally proud that I was one of the earliest ones to turn. You can see me turn against MVC right in that thread. And they were able to convince a, you know, a preponderance of engineers enough to commit this. And then basically a 22 and a 21 year old were able to fundamentally shift the structure of our entire product code base. And then that same insight that they had was moved into other domain and programming languages. It really is extraordinary when you think back on it. What do you miss about Facebook's engineering culture? Um, I miss mostly my ex-colleagues. Yeah. When you go through a lot of the, you know, they're very intense, very stressful times uh, where you're building technology really under the gun. And you kind of become a lighter weight version of War Buddies, where you kind of remember, you know, you were in the, in the stuff together. I'm trying not to curse here. And then, you know, it was just a, especially kind of the subset of the engineering teams that I interact with were just a group of extraordinarily brilliant and action-oriented yet and pragmatic people. And that mix is just lovely to work with. So I really do miss a lot of my colleagues is definitely the primary thing. I don't, you know, I don't miss the micro kitchens and, you know, the fancy pants uh, benefits. I certainly don't miss uh, the HR and performance review processes, but just the, the work with extraordinarily talented colleagues doing well, at the time, was definitely the best work of their lives and mine. So that's what I miss. Any larger organizational reflections on what made Facebook special and what other engineering organizations could learn from Facebook? That's difficult for me to say because I don't have wide-angle context on a lot, of the, a lot of the struggles that other people have in engineering organizations. Giving your senior technical talent space to determine their own objectives and work relatively independently, but with guidance from management. I'm not a no management person, but I think that Facebook was able to really strike a great balance there of having non-coercive but effective management styles combined with engineers who could execute independently, but then would get very direct feedback about what they were doing right and wrong. Um, So, the performance summary cycle that I was just complaining about, it did have very valuable second order effects of changing behavior. And it certainly did mine. Like I got some very negative performance reviews or aspects of performance reviews that 
criticized some of my methods and communication styles, and but that was uh, that was invaluable, you know. So that was the way the management. Was so you able- agree with them in in retrospect oh, the criticisms. A hundred percent. I agreed with them very. I mean, I, it took me a, a week or so to emotionally deal with it, but then on reflection, I was like, yeah, that that's right, yeah. Not everyone, you know, not every criticism. But I think the the management teams also did a very effective job of uh, collecting feedback from your peers and then synthesizing it into a coherent message. That And the best managers word that in a language that you can hear. So the most, my most effective manager, who most aligned with my personality and was able to kind of uh, alter my behavior the most, is uh, Arturo Behar. And he just, he synthesized all the feedback into very simple things. He would just give me one sheet of paper and would say, here's where you exceeded your expectations. Here's where you met your expectations. And here's where you fell short. Here's what we're going to work on the next six months. Here's how we're going to measure it. Very simple, very actionable. It allows you to focus on one thing. Because like, if you just get an unfiltered feedback on every, like, it's like, oh, he did this and that and like... You know, you need to synthesize it into a message that a person can actually act upon rather than just like getting five pieces of feedback and being like, well, I guess I'm a terrible person and that's the way the world works. All right, just a few more questions. My sense is that people underrate Mark Zuckerberg as a leader. What is the most underrated characteristic of Mark Zuckerberg as a leader? So I th- what I was always struck by with Mark is that in intense situations, he maintains a great deal of calm. And as you, you know, so you set up this organization where you set very ambitious goals, very high power people, and that naturally engenders some, some degree of chaos. And then, you know, Facebook did controversial things and you get criticized for it in the media, not necessarily the same fever pitch that today <laughs> is occurring. But I was very involved in this kind of privacy, one of our many privacy crises where we had to really changed the fundamental way that privacy worked in the app in a very condensed period of time. And like the whole management team was kind of running around with their heads cut off and really kind of, I wouldn't call hysteria, but like, you know, it's like, oh, we got to save the company, blah, blah, blah. And then Mark would just kind of enter these meetings and be like, we just have to silence the haters. Yeah. Very, you know, fix the issue and calm everyone down. And that was... And he's just kind of like, he's steady like a rock, you know. He is the same person that he's been for a long time, for good and ill. You know, he's grown, but like the core personality is there. And uh, yeah, so I just really appreciate the combination of not being a pushover and not being not ambitious, not having strong goals. But that in combination with like a steadiness and calmness is very, very effective. You are now working on your own company and you are taking reflections from your time at Facebook, your eight, eight years at Facebook? Eight years. Eight years, and, uh, and then time spent outside of Facebook reflecting on what is going on in the broader startup ecosystem and enterprise software ecosystem. Tell me about your, your reflections and what you're working on to the extent that you can talk about it. Yeah, no, I can talk about it. So in terms of what I've seen externally in the startup ecosystem that I did not see while I was at Facebook is that I was totally blind to the extraordinary innovation and progress in the public cloud infrastructure, as well as all the technologies surrounding it. You know, I left Facebook and like I had heard of Docker, but I was like, what the hell is Docker? And then I started playing with it. I was like, oh, this is super interesting. And then coupled with these new hosted SaaS services were like, you know, you can, even simple stuff I was kind of amazed by. I was like, wow, you can spin up your own CICD infrastructure where you are running a container? That's a beautiful abstract. Like containers are what processes should have been the whole time. So I was blown away by the innovation, the pace of innovation, the fundamental underlying change of economics of the public cloud infrastructure and all the associated cloud native technologies, Kubernetes, the entire ecosystem. So that was a total, that took me a few months to really absorb and learn about. What I'm working on uh, today, the company's called Elemental. So it's Elemental without the A. And I left and I didn't want to do social media anymore. 
And I started talking to people in more legacy industries, healthcare, finance, et cetera. And I was asking them what their technological problems were. This whole notion of data processing, some people call it ETL, data cleaning, the data infrastructure problem just kept on cropping up again and again and again. And so I would always end these meetings and I would say, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that's what's preventing you in your mind from transforming the American healthcare system is the ability to do a regularized computation on a CSV file. And they're like, yeah, pretty much. And I was like, what on earth is going on here? This is crazy. So I never, you know, I have difficult resisting the urge to rat hole on infrastructure. And I just dove right in. And I've kind of discovered this data engineering ETL world. And I think more and more programming going forward is going to be in the structure I think more engineers are going to have to participate in this is like you need feedback loops that integrate with the apps to do ML. And then when you would talk to people in the industry, every data scientist ever, like half their talks start with, well, I spend 20, 10, 5% of my time doing what my job is supposed to be. And I spend the other time data cleaning. And it's like, well, first of all, if that's 90% of your job, that kind of is your job. But, but what it actually reminded me of was talking to, let's say, a front-end engineer in 2008. And they would say something like, I spend 10% of my time on my business logic and 90% of my time fighting the browser. And as a result, front-end engineering at that time had a lot of pathologies. It was considered this engineering backwater there's like no culture of testability. Engineers would like dive in, do just enough JavaScript to make something fly around, and then get the hell out. People didn't want to work on it because they would look at these code bases and be like, I don't want to touch that, please. And then eventually things change. Yes, the browsers improve, but I actually think, again, I'm very biased, but you know, React, in some ways Angular and these other frameworks really did change the trajectory of the ecosystem fundamentally. And there is now testing frameworks, all the sophisticated infrastructure. And now you don't hear people say that. You'll hear people say that like, oh, there's JavaScript fatigue. There's too many tools, right? And there's not like a kind of a vertically integrated solution. But no one says they spend all their time fighting the browser or none of their time dealing with their business logic. And so I think that echoes to me in the data engineering space because when a data scientist says I spend 90% of my time data cleaning. That's how they experience it. But that's not the root cause, right? It's not just like it's hard. Like it's a system-wide, ecosystem-wide pathology. Like testing is super difficult. These pipelines are, or these data processing apps, I hate the word pipelining. These data processing apps are kind of multi-phase. They go from like a Spark job, to a data warehouse, to a Jupyter notebook. Every time you hop from phase to phase, you fall off what I like to call a semantic cliff, where you lose all context in the data. And then this ends up getting reified as you hire this genius data scientist, pay them God knows how much money, and then their workflow is you hand them a Jupyter notebook and a CSV file, and they're expected to reconstruct the entire domain of your application from scratch. That's crazy. So... You know, high level, I believe there's a company to be built and a technology to be built that serves the same function at a very high level that React played in the front end ecosystem, similar in the data engineering ecosystem. So kind of like high level, you know, what React did for UIs and what GraphQL did for APIs, I want Dagster, which is the open source technology that Elemental is hosting, to kind of be that, but for data processing. ETL, ELT, ML pipelines, whatever you want to call it. And then to build a sustainable business on top of that, that is 100% aligned with the success of the open source technology. Because I think constructing businesses that can sustainably host open source tech is a challenge. And I'm excited to also kind of move the needle on that or attempt to build an instance of that that works. Okay, well, we will save the rest of that can of worms for another conversation. Nick, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for having me. 
GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. You can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow, you let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org slash sedaily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily. ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend, and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry. It's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations, so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term. You can check it out yourself at gocd.org slash sedaily. Wow! 